The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to be talking about Darwinism. We're going to be talking about evolution and how it relates to the Scriptures. Um, But I would say we're going to be more in the realm of science tonight and in logic than we are in the Scriptures, and that's all right. It's not a Sunday morning sermon. We can do anything we want with Acts. Uh, And I think also there's a good reason for doing this. Uh, One of the basic tenets of people like Stephen Jay Gould and others, is that religion and science operate in essentially different realms, covering different things, and that there's no relationship between them at all. That is ground that we must never concede. Do you see that? We must never concede it, because then that supposes that... um, that there's a part of this world that God isn't sovereign over, that there's something in this universe that isn't His. But God claims all things as His. And He he claims the physical universe as His because He made it and He can rule over it. And there are many, many statements about the physical world in the Bible, about biology and about astronomy and about physics and origins. The Bible we should never mistake for a textbook in these things, but where the Bible states something concerning these, we must trust it. And so therefore it would be wrong of us in the church never to discuss science. That would be just playing right into their hands. It would be conceding the outlook that they are purporting anyway. That it's none of our business to be talking about those things. We should concede it to them, those who are the experts in those matters. We have nothing to say about that. Now, I don't deny in any way that I know more about uh, biological facts than somebody who's teaching biology at Duke. Absolutely not. Of course they know more and they study more. But what we're dealing with here are basic worldview issues and those go to the heart of who we are as human beings. So therefore, tonight we're going to be talking about science. We're going to be talking about logic and about worldviews and about presuppositions. And we're going to be looking at some of these things. And it is right for us to do this. You know why? Because so many people go through the church, they learn the Bible, they hear good Bible teaching, but they never hear anything about these topics, about science or anything. Then they go off into the university setting or in some other place. They hear some highfalutin language that they've never heard before. They hear topics and issues that have never been discussed before, and they're blown away by it. They're not stable. They're not strong. They have no root. And so they cannot handle it. Now, our purpose tonight is not to deal with all of these aspects. What I want to do instead is to show that there is a reasonable doubt scientifically about evolution. That's what I want to do tonight. That's all I'm trying to accomplish. There's a reasonable doubt about it. And once we've achieved that, then we can move on from there. You could spend the rest of your life studying and reading. And I actually found it frustrating. I thought I would have this outline done literally a week ago because we had the Valentine banquet. And uh, I figure I'll get this done. I'll be a week ahead. How exciting will that be for me? I've said before, I lose 100,000 brain cells every Wednesday afternoon. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Some people do it through drinking and drug abuse. I do it through preparing acts. <laughs> All right? Every single week. All right? And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be sweet to get a week ahead? Well, this thing just swallowed me up. 
And like a gas which expands to take whatever volume there is available, so this thing took whatever space there was available. And I was rude to Janet and walked by and didn't have a nice conversation with me because I wasn't ready yet. At 5.30, I still was working on this outline as Doris and Brevard saw me running the thing off. And so some of the physical pictures in here are a little crooked. You may see uh, some other mistakes. And why? Because I simply ran out of time. But there's a lot of good things, and tonight we're going to be looking at it. First thing we want to do, overall, we're going to be looking at problems with naturalistic evolution. Problems. And uh, when I first wrote the title here, The Origin of Life in the Fossil Record, I realized we're not even going to get to the fossil record tonight, because the origin of life will uh, be enough for us to talk about tonight. All right? But before we even get to that, we want to talk about what evolution is. And this is part of the issue. Part of the issue. How do we define evolution? In some ways... If we define it one way, I think we can agree that evolution does occur. If you simply define evolution as change, then we would have to say that evolution is constantly occurring. Some people call this microevolution, and then if you're even going to get into genetic issues of change, we would say that certainly this does occur. I don't think it could be refuted. Changes within a species based on adaptation to surrounding circumstances or selective breeding, this does occur. And we're going to talk more about it. It does happen. Examples abound. For example, dog breeding. Some of you may have a bred dog. I don't know. I'm not into dogs myself. I think there's plenty in our neighborhood and we listen to them barking and we can enjoy their barking anytime we want. And all we have to do is just listen. All right? And we can interact with them in many other ways as well. Moving on. At any rate, there is such a thing as dog breeding. There are other things, uh, horticultural development. People are always working on, let's say, increasing the sugar content of the sugar beet. Working on this through genetic issues. Although there have been some grotesque aberrations as people have meddled with things that they didn't fully understand and you end up with some hybrids and mutations that are very dangerous, even deadly to human beings, and there's a history of that. So we don't fully understand what we're doing, do we, when we start meddling with the DNA structure and with genes. But there it is, that these things are going on. And there's the example of peppered moths, in which basically it's shown that moths uh, ha took on a dingier color genetically uh, because of the Industrial Revolution and soot. And so this proved uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, evolution must be true and Darwinism must be true. The problem with that is that there were always those color of moths and there are always lighter ones and darker ones even at that time. It was just a matter of proportions or ratios. And if the circumstances changed, the ratios would move back. Is that really evolution? Well, I don't think so. We're going to talk more later on this evening about the biblical examples of, uh, I, know, I hate to call it evolution, but let's say changes within a species. All right, For example, so-called races of human beings with widely different physical characteristics. Yet according to the Bible, we believe that they all come from one set of parents. One set of parents. Acts uh, 17.26, it says, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. This is taught in many places in the Bible. And as we mentioned last time, two weeks ago, it happened twice with Adam and Eve and then with Noah and his sons and their wives. So all human beings, no matter how widely different their physical appearances all human beings come from one set of parents. Can this really be possible? Well, I think it is. And the more we've learned about genetics, the more we see just how possible it is. Uh, I think I'll cover this later, but it's appropriate to mention it now. Uh, geneticists have estimated that one couple, man and a woman, uh, one couple, can produce 
10 to the 2017th different kinds of children. And that's just an estimate. 10 to the 217. What that means is a one with 2,100, 2,017 zeros after. That's a big number. It's an unbelievably big number. It'd be hard to even imagine a number that big. What do we mean by that? Well, scientists estimate that in the entire universe, there are 10 to the 80th atoms. In the entire universe, that's all the stars, that's all the solar system, that's you, you're included, uh, that's the chairs you're sitting on, everything, 10 to the 80th atoms. In other words, you can have 10 to the 2017 different children. What do we mean by different? Genetically different. Whether hair color, eye color, whatever. Well, that's proven, I think, biblically by the fact that we get widely differing races, so-called. Now, racism, the idea that there's some kind of significant difference one to the other, is just simply unbiblical. And I think it could be directly connected to the Darwinism and the evolutionary framework, evolutionism, that's come in in the last 150 years. Now, I think there was evidence of racism before Darwin lived. It's always been in our hearts. But it's a ready excuse now uh, so that we can think of one race as better than another. This teaching is difficult for some people to accept. I remember when I was preaching through uh, and talking about this and that all the modern races came from Noah and from his sons but specifically from Noah because all his sons came from him. Uh, and I had a comment from uh, a member of the church afterwards that uh, he just didn't believe that this was true. And uh, uh, you can see how these issues are really deeply rooted in the human heart. But the fact of the matter is we believe biblically that it's true. And so if this verse is true, then all the genetic information for Asians, Africans, Europeans were in Adam, were in his seed. You understand that? Genetically, it was all there. We have some indication of this in the book of Hebrews when it says that Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek while he was still in the body of his ancestor, Abraham. That's in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, that he paid a tithe because he was still in the body of his ancestor. How does that work? Well, we think just genetically. He's, he was still physically in, in Abraham. So all of that genetic information for Levi was in Abraham's body before that. Now, the Bible also speaks of localized tribes of people having certain genetic tendencies. For example, height, Deuteronomy 2, 20 and 21. Uh, this is just a, a snip of, of uh, a couple of verses, but it says that too was considered a land of the Rephaites who used to live there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamites. They were a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. The Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. So here the genetic trait of height or tallness was given to the Anakites. They were tall people. All right. Also, Isaiah 18, 1 and 2. Woe to the land of warring wings along the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by sea in papyrus boats over the water. Go swift messengers to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people far and feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. Cush is the upper area of, of Egypt getting into the Sudan where, where the Nile has its headwaters or its origination. So it's talking about African people who were tall and smooth-skinned, a people feared far and wide. So again, we see certain tendencies of peoples. And God delights in these things. They're part of his original plan. So there's indications of what we call microevolution. Do you see what we're talking about? Differences within a species, differences within a kind. But is that macroevolution? Is that what the evolutionists mean when they talk about evolution? I think not. How do they define macroevolution? Well, first of all, evolution itself, defined by evolutionists, they would seek a simplistic 
and commonplace dev uh, definition of evolution to accept, so that we accept it, so that we see even the differences between peoples and all that as evidence of evolution. Why? Why do they want a simple evolution because, or definition of evolution because they want it to be widely accepted? You see what I'm saying? So they're going to have a very simple definition. Evolution equals change. That's all they're going to say. All right, but this is what they say. In the broadest sense, evolution is merely change. Do you see that right there? Evolution is just change. And so it's all pervasive. Galaxies, languages, and political systems all evolve. Biological evolution is change in the properties of populations of organisms that transcend the lifetime of a single individual. The ontogeny of an individual is not considered uh, evolution. Individual organisms do not evolve. The changes in populations that are considered evolutionary are those that are inheritable via the genetic material from one generation to the next. Biological evolution may be slight or substantial. It embraces everything from slight changes in the proportion of different alleles within the population, that's the uh, genetic makeup, you know, genetic changes, uh, such as those determining blood types, to the successive alterations that led from the earliest protoorganism to snails, bees, giraffes, and dandelions. Wow! We started out with a simple definition. Evolution is merely what? Change. And we went to the full-blown uh, outworkings of it at the end. Uh, this guy, Lawrence Moran, said, it is important to note that biological evolution refers to populations and not to individuals, and that the changes must be passed on to the next generation. In practice, it means that evolution is a process that results in heritable changes in a population spread over many generations. That's the definition of evolution. Uh, these are all evolutionists that are giving us this. In fact, evolution can be precisely defined as any change in the frequency of alleles within a gene pool from one generation to the next. So it's a genetic change that's passed on to the next generation. That's how they define evolution. Well, how do creationists define evolution? Well, evolution is the view that non-living substance gave rise to the first living material, which subsequently reproduced and diversified to produce all extinct and extant organisms. All right? Or another definition. The framework behind the evolution, evolutionist interpretation is naturalism. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But naturalism, it is assumed that, uh, that things made themselves, that no divine intervention has happened, and that God has not revealed to us knowledge about the past. Evolution is a deduction from this assumption, and it is essentially the idea that things made themselves. It includes these unproven ideas. Nothing gave rise to something at alleged Big Bang. Non-living matter gave rise to life. Single-celled organisms gave rise to many-celled organisms. Invertebrates give rise to vertebrates. Ape-like creatures give rise to man. Therefore, non-intelligent and amoral matter gave rise to intelligence and morality. Man's yearnings gave rise to religions, etc. Now that, you see, is a much bigger definition, isn't it? It's basically a philosophy, a worldview, a way of looking at everything. What that means is that time plus chance is the only explanation for everything. It just happened this way. And all of your thoughts are ultimately foolishness. They mean nothing. It's just a, a dream or something like that. C.S. Lewis talked about this and he said, you know, I, saw, I see no uh, sense to any of this because ultimately then my thoughts about evolution and all that are themselves foolishness. There's no point in even thinking about it. It all adds up to nothing. We realize that. Evolution is the supposed increase in complexity achieved when a given plant or animal evolves into a higher, more complex kind of organism. Henry Morris. Now, key differences in the definitions are worth noting. First of all, the role of naturalism. Notice that the, non -evolution, the evolutionists never mention their predisposition toward naturalism. 
What we mean by that is they don't tell you that they just believe that the material universe is all there is. That's, that's it. That physical stuff is the only stuff there is. And that, that's the only explanation there can be. Do you see how so-called theistic evolution cannot coexist with true evolution? They would reject it. They'd say, no, we don't want you here. We don't want God coming in. You'll see that clearer in a moment. But the fact of the matter is, naturalism is the basic way of thinking. M matter, molecules, atoms, that's all there is. What does that leave out? God. God. He's not involved. The concept that nature is all there is and that species evolved by mere laws of nature, not by a guiding intelligence. Secondly, a key issue is that of increasing complexity. Do you see that? Evolution, therefore, as we're talking about it tonight, is not merely change. It's change to the ever more complex so that we go from simple to complicated to incredibly complex. That's what I think of when I think of evolution. Evolution is a theory which explains how complex life can exist apart from guiding intelligence. Therefore, there's not much sense in talking about decreasing complexity as evolution. It's not evolution. All right? All right, so those are definitions. Now let's talk about what I call the religion of evolution. And it is a religion. What is a religion? Before we even go on, what do you think of when you think of religion? What does that term mean to you? Anything that you hold too firmly, Ellen? What you say? A man-made belief, I guess. Habitual practice. Okay. Worldview. When you think of religion, what would be the connection with, let's say, for example, worship? Is there any relationship between religion and worship? Worship is part of religion. Okay. So there's a sense of awe and wonder and amazement, a sense of attraction. Let me tell you something. I've been amazed at the worship statements that are among these evolutionists. They're in awe of evolution. They love it. It's an elegant theory, so-called. That's what they talk about, it being an elegant theory. It's, it's attractive to them, and I'll tell you why. It gives them the freedom to live how they want. All right? It gives them a different way of looking at the universe. Remember the quote I read two weeks ago from Darwin, how he talked about how he hated Christianity because of its doctrine of hell. And he said, if, he said I can scarcely imagine how anyone could wish this to be true. Let me tell you something. I can say the same about evolution. Why could you possibly want this to be true? What's your motive? That after we die, we get to be dissolved into atoms and eaten by other microbes and we cease to exist entirely? Why would you want that to be true? They would answer, it has nothing to do with what I want or doesn't want. It has to do with what is, what is true. And I'm courageous enough to face the truth that we are nothing, that we're time plus chance. At least I'm courageous enough to take control and be the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I can face the facts. You just can't, so you stick your head in a religious hole. But I'm courageous enough to face the facts. What's the root of that attitude? It's pride, isn't it? The root of this whole thing, I believe, is pride. And you're going to find it straight through. In the end, evolution becomes a system of worship. They worship created things more than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Romans chapter 1. It's amazing how much Romans 1 explains the evolutionary way of thinking. All right, the religion of evolution. This is truly a clash of worldviews. Got the, a lot of this from the book Refuting Evolution by Jonathan Sarfati. You can pick that up. It's a very good book. Uh, Douglas Futoima made a true statement. This is what he said. Now, this guy, Douglas Futuma, I've already quoted. He is an evolutionist. This is what he says. Tell me if you think this is true. Creation and evolution together exhaust the logical possibilities for the existence of the universe. Number one, creation. Number two, evolution. Or if you prefer, number one, evolution. And number two, creation. That's it. Variation of one of those two. There is no third option. 
Do you agree that that's true? Either a guiding intelligence, a deity, a god, created this stuff and has been working it out, or you have naturalistic evolution. Is there a third option? I don't think there is. I don't think there is. So this is it. And that's going to end up being important the more we look at it tonight. If these are the only two options that there are, then any argument against evolution is really what? Logically. It's for creation. It just brings you right there. It's just the way it is. If these are the only two options you've got, Therefore, any argument against creation is argument for evolution. Any argument for evolution is against creation. It's just their opposite ways of looking at the universe, and there is no third option. It's not like we're waiting for some philosopher or somebody to come along and say, well, we don't need either one. What we've got is a third option. There is no third option. All right? Therefore, this is a struggle of two totally incompatible worldviews. And evolutionists admit this. Evolution is a theory universally accepted not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. Now, what is that guy saying? What is this scientist saying? We, we can't prove evolution, but we accept it, and why? What does he say in this statement? Why does he accept evolution? He doesn't want the contrary. He said, I can't believe it. So we've got to go with evolution. And we're going to follow it. We're going to make it work no matter what evidence or lack of it there is. And we're going to see that when it comes to two things in, spe in specific. How life came from non-life and the fossil record and its deficiencies. They have no explanation for these things. There is no explanation. And as a matter of fact, they have the gall to tell us that they don't need an explanation because they know evolution happened whether they can figure it out or not. That's about what they say. We don't really need to know how it happened. We have theories about how life came from non-life, but we can't ever prove it. Just like you, for example, may have theories about why the uh, Roman Empire fell. You won't be able to prove your theories, and it's fun to talk about, but we know one thing, the Roman Empire <laughs> fell. That's about the way they, they argue. They say, we concede that we have a hard time explaining how life came from non-life. We have a hard time with that. And I don't know that we're ever going to be able to figure it out. Stephen Jay Gould goes so far as to say he thinks if you could take everything back to the original point where it all started and do it again, it would never have happened this way the second time. The odds against it were so immense. But he said the fact of the matter is it did happen, so there we are. You see the way of thinking. It's a way of thinking. Say so We know evolution is true, we just can't figure it out. Can't figure it out. And that's going to be true in two ways especially. How did life come from non-life? And why, if there is this constant evolution going on for, as they say, millions and even billions of years, why can we find not a single transitional char uh, characteristic in the fossil record from these early life forms to the more complex? There should be no trouble finding transitional fossils. They can't find one in the early stages. Now, once you get to later stages, once the, it's branched out, then they say they have tons of transitional things. And then that becomes a matter of debate. You know, what is a transitional figure from one to the other? But at the earlier stages, when you can see these, these trilobites and all that, before that, nothing. It just, they just show up, and they cannot explain it. They say, well, we don't need to explain it. We just know it's true. We just know it's true. Let me show you what I mean. This is uh, that book I showed you two weeks ago. I love this book. The more I read about it, the, the more I enjoy it. It's just um, a ton of fun. And it's uh, got great pictures, which I like. You know, but here, right from the start, they give us their philosophy. You should always read this. If they're going to do this, they're going to put it right on the table. Take the time to read it. Find out what they say. 
When the authors of your book, Kenneth Miller and Joseph Levine, approached Prentice Hall about writing a secondary biology textbook, they had two major concerns in mind. First, they wanted to write a book that stressed conceptual development and provided insight into the thinking processes behind scientific discovery. They did not want to write an encyclopedic biology tome that stressed memorization of terminology. They wanted to teach students how to think like scientists when it came to biology. All right, fine, that's great, no problem. Number two, second, they wanted to write a book that teaches the evolutionary relationships among organisms. Right from the start, they put their cards on the table. They basically are saying that, the, that biology cannot be understood apart from evolution. And so right from the start, they're going to interpret everything they see through that grid. Thank you very much for telling us your predisposition. No amount of evidence will change their mind. It can't. And why? Because you've only got two options, and they cannot accept the other option. They can't. And so they've got to stick with the first. This is a struggle of two incompatible worldviews. Scientists, therefore, are not as unbiased and truth-seeking as they purport. This is a quote from uh, Boyce Rensberger and How the World Works. At this point, it is necessary to reveal a little inside information about how scientists work, something the textbooks don't usually tell you. The fact is that scientists are not really as objective and dispassionate in their work as they would like you to think. Most scientists first get their ideas about how the world works, not through rigorously logical processes, but through hunches and wild guesses. As individuals, they often come to believe something to be true long before they assemble hard evidence that will convince somebody else that it is. Motivated by faith in his own ideas and a desire for acceptance by his peers, a scientist will labor for years knowing in his heart that his theory is correct, but devising experiment after experiment whose results he hopes will support his position. I don't totally agree with the statement. I think that most scientists do not simply get their ideas from wild hunches. Realize that in order to get your, uh, your accrediting, you know, your credentials from the scientific world, you have to go to their institutions. You have to go through their universities. You have to take their tests. You have to flow through the rusty pipes. And don't think you're not going to pick up some rust along the way. And as you flow through those pipes and pick up their worldviews, etc., even if you reject it, if you went through insulated from it, just as a solid Christian and whatever, went through and you somehow got your degree, now it's time to get a job and start doing important research and all that, and there's grant money. Do you think they're going to give all that to you if you, you want to pursue these kinds of things? No. So the bottom line is you must play by their rules or they'll kick you out of the game. So that's a problem. And so automatically, if you come in simply open-minded and don't really have any moorings at all, you're going to be pulled toward their approach. You're going to learn how they date old things by radioisotopic dating, and you're not even going to question it. That's how you do it. You're going to go through all of these things. You're going to learn their techniques and go their way. And once you do, then you're going to start trying to carve out a niche for yourself. By the way, what makes you want to do that? Carve out a niche for yourself. Make a name for yourself. What, what causes you to do that? Pride. Okay? I, I tell you, we're going to keep interacting with this again and again. You're going to carve out a niche. And then you're going to spend your life working in that niche. You're going to write papers. You're going to become known as the guy who did such and such. And you're going to defend your theories, etc. Do you think you're going to be open to some contrary paradigm that's going to destroy your entire life work? You're going to fight it with every strength you've got. You're going to fight it. And so there's just a psychology to this. They're not as open and unbiased as they might think. And so when they're in the lab and they're trying to make amino acids, they're going to do everything they can to make amino acids in that test tube. And when they found it and they tweak it and work with it, they're going to tell you they've created life in the test tube. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay? But that's what they're trying to do. All right? Scientists, therefore, uh, have, many scientists have an implicit bias against creation, against the Genesis account. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. Stop right there. 
That is a shocking statement. We're going to take the side of science, even if it makes no sense. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't seem scientific to me. But anyway, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for its unsubstantiated just-so stories. Stop there. Did you ever read just-so stories by Rudyard Kipling? You know, how the elephant got its nose and all that? How the whale got its tiny throat? Did you ever read those stories? It was a lot of fun. My kids love to read it. By Rudyard Kipling. You know, the, the, the elephant got his nose when some crocodile pulled on it. And I, you haven't read these stories? Oh, these things are great. This guy says that's what science does with origins. They're just, they're just so stories, and we're supposed to accept it. We're supposed to swallow it, even though there's no substantiation for it. Uh, materialist or unsubstantiated just so stories. And why? This is a key statement. Underline it. Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. What's materialism? It's not driving a Mercedes-Benz. That's not what it is. Materialism is a philosophy that says that atoms are all there is. We're committed to the fact that there is no God. Materialism. Prior commitment to materialism. It is, not, it is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Now listen. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. You see that? I mean, this is remarkable. We are, going, we are not going to listen to any evidence. And why? Because we can't allow God in the door. Once you do that, then everything changes. And so they fight it. Science, therefore, is fundamentally a game. It is a game with one overriding and defining rule. Rule number one, let us see how far and to what extent we can explain the behavior of the physical and material universe in, ter in terms of purely physical and material causes without invoking the supernatural. That's what we're going to try to do. And they've been doing it. And that's what they teach our kids in schools and whatever. And, and that's why I began the way I did tonight, saying we must talk about these things in the church if we're truly believers in the Bible. Do you see why? Because the, the world and everything in it is God's. He created it and made it. And we shouldn't forfeit, as the fundamentalists did after the Scopes Monkey Trial, we should not forfeit science because it's so intimidating and too hard for us. We shouldn't forfeit it. All right? Science. What is science? What is it? Well, it's dealing with observable facts in the present and dealing with so-called refutable theories. That's what science is. Therefore, it has limits, doesn't it? We'll talk about that in a minute. Scientific method has four steps. Number one, observation and description of phenomenon or group of phenomena. You're going to observe something, something with your senses. You're going to hear something. You're going to see something. You're going to feel something. Use your five senses to observe a phenomena in the material world. Secondly, you're going to formulate a hypothesis to explain the phenomena. You're going to think, what causes this? You're going to think it through. In physics, the hypothesis often takes the form of a causal mechanism or mathematical relation. Number three, the use of a hypothesis to predict the existence of other phenomena or to predict quantitatively the results of new observations. So once you have a hypothesis, you're going to make predictions. If this is true, then we should see this. Like, if evolution is true, we should see such and such in the fossil record. Right? Say yes. Yes, we should see something in the fossil record. A constant transition of species. Shouldn't we? And even more if there's millions and millions of years. Even more. That's what I'm saying. There should be lots of these fossils out there, not a few. Tons. The fact that there's not even one should bother 
these folks. It should trouble them. But that's next time, fossil record, not this time. Come on, stick to the point. All right, <laughs> number four, performance of a experimental tests of the predictions by several independent experimenters and properly performed experiments. So you're going to test your hypothesis a number of ways. This is what science can do. That's all. This is what we're talking about. Four steps. All right, now listen. Any theory which cannot be disproved or refuted cannot be said to be science. Okay? It is an important characteristic of a scientific theory or hypothesis is that it be falsifiable. You have to be able to think of an experiment which disproves your hypothesis. Okay? Skip down to the examples so that you know what I'm talking about. Science cannot determine, for example, if the sonnets of William Shakespeare are better than the poetry of John Milton. That's just not the realm of science. It's a matter of taste. You can't come up with an experiment that would prove it or disprove it. You can't. Science cannot determine anything at all about the past. Do you realize what we're saying here? Why can science not determine anything about the past? Why we, can we not prove scientifically that Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States? He doesn't exist anymore. There's no laboratory experiment you could, you could set up which would, would prove the hypothesis. It's not science. It's history, but it isn't science. Now, history makes its own assumptions. If we have enough documentary records and some photographs and we have some physical artifacts and enough you know, contemporary histories, et cetera, then we can reconstruct an event in the past and we can be pretty certain it happened. But that's history. It isn't science. Do you see why? Science is working with the present and making predictions about the future. That's all. Why is that important when it comes to evolution? It's all grounding in the past. It's all going backward, isn't it? You're making ob observations in the present and then drawing conclusions about the past. Can you verify what happened in the past? You absolutely cannot. And therefore, it isn't science. That's very troubling for them, all right? It really is. But it's the opposite of the very thing. It is not falsifiable. We can't falsify their assumptions about the dating techniques, for example. You can't falsify them. You can't disprove them. Why? Because we didn't live 700 million years ago. And there's no way to prove what was in rocks and what wasn't in rocks 700 millions, million years ago. We can't disprove it. Therefore, it's not science. All right. This has been applied to the apparent age theory that God created the universe to appear old. Have you heard that before? They, just like Adam probably had a belly button and the trees had rings and all that. All of that may be true. It really bothers you know, evolutionists because they say that that makes God a deceiver and a liar. What's so funny about that is that they take their hypotheses and assumptions as absolute truth and therefore if God is going against it, then he is the liar. It's so arrogant what they're saying. Very, very arrogant. But at any rate, they say either way we can't falsify it just like we can't falsify the idea. When I was a kid, I remember thinking this for a little while, I'd, you know, and, it, and my mother was so offended by it that I got shocked out of it. But um, I assumed that nothing in the universe existed except myself and what I could see, all right? And the universe behind me didn't exist until I turned and looked at it, and then it suddenly came up, and then when I turned away, it stopped existing. My mother would say, it's there, I can see it. Yeah, but I'm not sure you exist. And she got so, so upset. And... Uh, I didn't get dinner that night or whatever that I, you know, my theories changed quickly. I wasn't getting much out of it. And so, but either way, you can't falsify it. You can't prove it. All right. And it bothers them. All right. So science cannot be used to prove or disprove Jesus' miracles. You can't scientifically prove or disprove the resurrection. Do you understand that? It's just not what science is made for. It's a, there's a limit to what we can do with it. You can't prove or disprove that the Word of God, the Bible's the Word of God by science. It's just you can't. That's not what, there's no experiment you could set up and, and prove it. 
What science can do is make verifiable observations of phenomena and derive theoretical explanations for those phenomena by making future predictions based on those theories. And science cannot prove or disprove, for example, the basic assumptions of radioisotope dating techniques. Now, have you ever been to an amusement of natural science or history which tells you that this rock is 700 million years old or 1.2 billion years old? Do you ever wonder how they know? I mean, that's troubling. How do you know? And it's so uniform. You go to all these things, and they're all about the same, and they talk about various levels, the Cambrian period and the Metazoic period and all this stuff, and it's so elaborate. And it's just like the emperor's new clothes. You're like, like excuse me, how do you know all this? You know, were you there? It's very, very tough, all right? If you look at Job, take a minute and look at Job 38. Job 38, verse 1 through 4. Somebody read that, if you would. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is that? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Okay, good question. 38.4. Where were you? when I laid the foundations of the earth. You know that African hymn, Were You There When They Crucified Him? Were you there when, they, when the Lord laid the foundations of the earth? Raise your hand if you were there. You weren't. And so therefore, can you make this falsifiable assumption about the quantity of lead in rocks 700 million years ago? No, nobody was there. Nobody was there. Well, how does radioisotope dating work? There's a number of types, but let's talk about the type that focuses on uranium and lead. What they do is they make some assumptions. The basic logic works this way. Fact. Look at the middle of page 5. Fact. A sampling of lava rocks from the present time has such and such an average amount of lead-207 and uranium-235. Note. Rocks are considered new when they solidify from molten to solid state as from lava flow. That's when their life began. That's how they interpret that. Okay? So... You can go out and you can measure rocks and find out how much lead, 207, they have and how much uranium, 235. You can measure that. Is that verifiable scientifically? Yeah, of course. You can do that if you've got the money and the time to fly all over the world. And, or you can take other scientists' word for it that they've done this research. You see what I'm talking about. It's very practical. Because if you're not going to go out there and measure, you've got to take other people's words for it that they did good measurements. But let's just assume they did. And they can measure rocks all over the world and tell you how much uranium's in them and how much lead. There's a certain ratio. Okay, fact. Uranium-235 decays to lead with a half-life of 700 million years. Can that be verified in a laboratory? Be careful before you answer. In one sense, theoretically, it can. Physically, it can. The half-life calculations and all that can be. But we know that ultimately what you're doing is you're taking certain measurements like this and extrapolating out. You have to because nobody lives 700 million years. It's the only way you can do it. So you've got to take the data you read and say, clearly the trend can be extended out. You've made an assumption now about half-lives, but there it is. All right. Next, fact. This rock in my hand, which is about to go into the Chicago Museum of Natural Science, this rock has so much uranium and so much lead. Can you make that verifiable calculation? Yes, you can. Number four, unprovable assumption. This rock in my hand had the same ratio of lead-207 and uranium-235 when it was originally formed that the sampling that we've taken all over the world has. 
Can you make that scientifically provable fact? Yes or no? The answer is absolutely not. You can't. There's no way to prove that. You just assume that it is. That's all. Now, it's a little more complicated than this because they say that the decay leaves certain traces and all the other things, but the, the problem's still the same. All right? And number five, therefore, all the additional lead 207 in the rock came from decay of uranium-235. Therefore, this rock is such and such millions of years old. Do you see how it works? Now, we have a problem right in the center, don't we? We have a problem right in the center. And what is it? We don't know what happened. Now, turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we'll see how this philosophy is pervasive, and we have to identify it and call it what it is. <clears throat> He's talking about the day of the Lord in 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord is what? What is the day of the Lord? Second coming of Christ, the end of the world, right? Okay, day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffers. What are scoffers? Yeah, they're mockers. They're people who ridicule and make fun. I was so offended by some of the things that were written about creation science by some of these guys. I mean, even Harvard and others, they're writing and you read and they'll have a little blur about creation science right in the middle and they will use very insulting words, even, I think, close to unprintable words, which I will not utter before you, but they talk about creation science that way. I felt ridiculed. There's a scoffing mentality that goes on here. All right, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own, own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Well, what coming is it referring to there? The second coming, the coming of the Lord, right? All right, what is their assumption that there will be no coming? On what basis are they making their conclusion that there'll be no coming? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Stop there. They're making an assumption, aren't they? First of all, what they've seen from the time that their father d died can be extrapolated back to when? The beginning of creation. All right, now they don't say creation anymore, but just way back when. That's what we call <clears throat> the uniformitarian, uniformitarian assumption. Everything that you observe now has always been that way back to time immemorial, including the ratio of lead and uranium-235 in rocks. They make that assumption, and they must make that assumption. They have to go back. Realize it's not science anymore because it can't be verified. It can't be falsified. But they're making this assumption it comes right out of Scripture. They're assuming that everything that has been going on since the day they were born has actually been going on since creation and will continue on indefinitely. And what does Jesus say? No, I'm going to come like a thief in, a night, in the night. What does Peter say? Keep reading. <clears throat> verse 5. What is verse 5? Somebody read verse 5 uh, through 7. They deliberately forget these things. They willfully turn their mind away from these facts. And what facts? Well, that there was, look at verse 6, a world of that time. What is that referring to? The world of that time was destroyed. What world of that time? The first world. What first world? The one before the flood. Okay, now you say, well, what are you talking about? And we're going to have to go into this in more, more detail at another time. 
The flood was not just a rising of waters until everything that breathed air died. It was worse than that. It was a rending of the surface of the earth. Do you understand that? It was a worldwide flood. It must have been. Some, some Christians even. I heard this teaching in my seminary, Gordon Conwell, that the flood was localized. Mesopotamia, this kind of thing. It was localized. How can that possibly be true? Let me draw for you. Okay? The earth... Notice I didn't draw it flat. They say we're like flat earth people. But anyway, I know it's curved. I know it's round. But anyway. And some mountains. Now I'm going to draw the water. Okay? There's some basic biblical facts about the flood of Noah. It covered the mountains to a depth of 20 meters. All right? And it prevailed upon the earth for over a year. That's important. Let me draw the water. Here it is. See it? Covering the earth. Covering the... All right. Now, let's say it's localized. Like this is a basin. Like a little bowl and all that. What's the problem? It's over the mountains. What's going to happen? It's going to leak. Okay? There it goes. All right. So it lasts for one year, covers the mountains. All right. Can you have a localized flood that lasts for one year and covers mountains? It cannot be. It's impossible. So the flood covered the earth. All right. Well, then the second question is, okay, where did the water go? Well, if you, if you level out the land so that everything's flat, then the water would cover the earth to a depth of like 10,000 feet, something like that. That's not enough to cover the mountains. So what's happened is the topography of the earth has changed since the flood. There was a rending of the surface of the earth. There was a deepening of the ocean basins to give a place for the water to flow. You understand? It's a different world we live in now. It's just different. You want proof of that? Look at Genesis 2 where it talks about the four waters, the Tigris, Euphrates, the, the, the Pishon, and there's a fourth river. You don't find that in the topography of Asia Minor uh, in, you know, where Iraq is and all that. You just see the two rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates. You say, well, why are they called Tigris and Euphrates? I just think that those are the names that Noah gave those rivers after he got off the ark. Just like the settlers in New England, you look at a map of New England, there's, all, there's basically two kinds of names in New England. There's Indian names and English names. All, right? all the counties are named after English counties like Suffolk and, Me uh, and Middlesex and Essex. Those are all English county names. Why did the settlers in New England give them English county names? That's what they knew, right? Well, Noah gets off the ark and there's a couple of rivers. There's the Tigris, there's the Euphrates. All right, but it's in a different place. It's a whole different situation. It's a new world. Do you see what I'm talking about? And so therefore, can we really make assumptions about what was going on before the flood? We don't really know. We don't know much at all about what's going on before the flood. So uniformitarianism just doesn't work. We can't stick with it. All right, these things are unprovable. Now, the fact of old earth and evolution. As a result, people say that evolution is a fact. Evolution is a fact. Stephen Jay Gould said we need... You know, you always hear creationists saying that evolution is just a theory. They say they're so ignorant. So ignorant. Because, of course, it's a theory. We, that's what we work with is theories. And we keep working with them until they're disproved. But until then, we just call, we call them theories. It's not a problem. It's like the theory of gravity. But if something gets so, so established as clearly proven again and again, we could even call it the law of gravity. But it's still a theory. That's the way we work. Facts are things that we can observe that make up the theories and that test theories. All right, if that's true, just skip the Gould statement. You can read it later. But look at this next one, page six. <clears throat> I love this. It is time, this is by this guy, R.C. Lewontin, Evolution Creation Debate, A Time for Truth, Bioscience Magazine. Now listen, 
It is time for students of the evolutionary process, especially those who have been misquoted and used by the creationists, to state clearly that evolution is a fact, not a theory, and that what is at issue within biology are the questions of details of the process and the relative importance of different mechanisms of evolution. It is a fact, now listen to this, it is a fact that the earth with liquid water is more than 3.6 billion years old. Stop there. How did he say that? How can you call that a fact if at the core of the dating techniques are unprovable assumptions? But he calls it a fact that cannot be controverted. I'm saying it can't be falsified and therefore it's not science. It's religion. Do you see that? They, they, they believe this. They, they accept this contrary to or lined up with data as they interpret it. It's a religion. It's not a science. Let's keep going. It is a fact that cellular life has been around for at least half of that period and that organized multicellular life is at least 800 million years old. It is a fact that major life forms now on the earth were not at all represented in the past. There were no birds or mammals 250 million years ago. It is a fact that major life forms of the past are no longer living. There used to be dinosaurs and Pithecanthropus, and there are none now. It is a fact that all living forms come from previous living forms. Therefore, all present forms of life arose from ancestral forms that were different. Birds arose from non-birds and humans from non-humans. No person who pretends to anything to know anything, I missed a word there in typing, who pretends to know anything of the natural world can deny these facts. Do you see the emperor's new clothes there? No one who pretends to know anything of the natural world can deny these facts. Well, I deny them. Okay, so what am I? I don't know anything about the natural world. I don't know, and neither do you, if you deny them. You see the intimidation, all right? Any more than she or he can deny that the earth is round, rotates on its axis, and revolves around the sun. Now, I want to I ask you something. Do you see the last three examples? The earth is round, rotates on its axis, and revolves around the sun. Let me stress something. The earth is round. The earth rotates on its axis and revolves around the sun. What do you notice about the verb tenses that I'm stressing? Present tense. Are these facts verifiable or not? Yes. But he's been making for this entire long paragraph statements about what? The past. Do you notice that? And how subtly it occurs. And they cannot be verified. All right. Now, have you ever heard of God of the Gaps? All right, well, let's talk about God of the gaps. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Now we'll learn about it. This is the sneering arrogance of human wisdom. We know so much more than our ignorant ancestors. How does it work? Well, the argument of God of the gaps has this form. There is a gap in scientific knowledge. Therefore, the things in this gap are best explained as acts of God. But the more we learn, the less we need God. You see how it works? And so we're just learning more and more and we need less and less of God until after a while there just are no gaps anymore. Bye-bye, God. We don't need him anymore. Do you see the arrogance of that whole approach? Okay? This is not based in logic. It's simply a statement of pessimism about the future progress of science. This is all a quote from an evolutionist, by the way. Down through the centuries, scientists, science has eliminated a great many of the gaps. People who had used the gap argument were embarrassed since their God shrank in power with each new scientific advance. For example, after the work of Galileo and Newton, it was no longer thought that angels pushed the planets across the heavens. You see the arrogance here. Our God keeps shrinking in power the more that we learn. Who's really in control then? The scientists. We make God smaller and smaller. Oh, they do make God smaller in their own estimation. But we say, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. We want to make God greater. We won't make God anything. He is great. 
whether you think he is or not. But we still need to magnify him where? In our own estimation. So they are making God smaller in their own estimation and he will condemn them for it because they're turning away, he's turning away from the clear evidence of God's divine nature and eternal power. All right. There is, however, a, a approach of the God of the gaps working the other way. Evolution has the same approach. Look at the top of page 7. The argument, this argument has this form. Here's how it works. There is a gap in scientific knowledge of evolutionary mechanisms. Therefore, anything in this gap is best explained by huge amounts of time allowed for evolution. That's their God of the gaps. Whenever they don't know something, what do they tell you? Time. Just time. Billions of years covers it. Therefore, this... Forget the earth and all the flood and all that. I don't know what happened to my rag. There it is. All right. Here is the room. Here's the dirt. That stuff we can't figure out. Here's the carpet, the rug. Let's lift it up and sweep all this stuff under the rug and put the carpet down. And what's the carpet called? Time. Okay? If we can't explain something, we're going to cover it with this one thing called time. There's been, of course now, millions and millions of years to allow this to occur. And so I know it's hard to understand how life can arrive from non-life. I know that's very, very hard to understand. Oh, yes, it's hard. It's more than just hard. It's impossible. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. But understand now, we've got billions, really, of years to work with. We already proved that, didn't we, a moment ago? Didn't we prove that with the radioisotopic dating and all that sort of stuff? We proved the, that there's been plenty of time. So we can, we'll get to it by and by. And you know what? Even if we never do figure it out, even if, as Stephen Jay Gould, we die before ever really figuring all this stuff out, it's okay because it still happened. Evolution still occurred, you see? You sweep all the problems under the rug of time. So time is their god of the gaps. Time will cover all wounds. Time heals all wounds for the evolution. Now, natural selection from particles to people. What is natural selection? It's called survival of the fittest. Have you heard of that before? Survival of the fittest does work. Have you ever heard of March, March Madness? <laughs> and we crown the fittest in April. First or second of April, we crown the fittest and we give them the national championship and they get to wear t-shirts and hats and celebrate and jump around and um, there it is. Survival of the fittest, right? Sports is a great example of, of uh, Darwinism at work, you know? Merciless survival of the fittest, we don't care, all right? At any rate, natural selection is survival of the fittest. The fact of the matter is they frequently misunderstand creationism. What do I mean by that? Sign at London Ma Museum of Natural History and Darwin Exhibit said the following. Before Charles Darwin, most people believed that God created all living things in exactly the form that we see today. This is the basis of the doctrine of evolution. That is false. That is false. Sorry, that's the uh, basis of the doctrine of creation. That's a false statement. That is not what I believe. I don't believe that God created all of the so-called racial tendencies or, or, or physical features in the Garden of Eden. He created one man and one woman. And so what happened from then? A development, a genetic development. The same was true of, of dogs and other things. You ever wonder how Adam could have named all of those species or whatever in a single day? Well, first of all, you say, well, did it have to be a day? Yeah, it really did, um, or else you're going to give up the six days. It was a busy day. But I think what we have to do is say, okay, that there were certain types that he named. And those types carried within them the genetic information for all that would follow. In the same way, it wasn't any problem for Noah to get all of his species onto the, um, onto the ark because all he had to do was get certain representative types and God knew what genetic types he had to have in order to get all of the species. You see, that's how that works. So basically, if you look at this tree on the left-hand side, this is evolution. Do 
you see it? Everything comes from the same ancestors. The prehistoric biological soup. <laughs> you can find yourself there in some amoeba swimming around. We're all related to the same little slimy amoeba. Long, long time ago. And so it all just branches out from there. They say that we teach figure two. It's like a lawn. Do you see that? Or like a crew cut in a marine, I guess. I don't know. But um, basically everything starts at a certain point and some things do become extinct, but they have nothing to do one with the other and they just go on. We don't teach that. We actually teach more like an orchard. Do you see that? Everything had a specific start, but there are some genetic branches that branch out. And so we see families of dogs, like the dingo and the coyote and the wolf and the chihuahua, you know, and the poodle and all that, and the Great Dane. So there's branching out. That's more of what we are saying. So we believe in a form of natural selection. Variety of dogs we just listed, boxer, bulldog, Great Dane, German Shepherd, fine. Genetic information for all the varieties intrinsic to the original parents. Now, the key question is, can they mate and produce offspring? This has always been the issue. You identify a kind by reproduction. If, if, the, if the, this species can reproduce with that and produce offspring, then they're in the same kind, even if they don't look like each other. A Great Dane and a Chihuahua can produce an offspring. It's difficult, but can, they can do it. All right? And what will it look like? Something in between, a hybrid of some sort. Okay? Well, it mentions... Um, the key concept in Genesis chapter 1 and also chapter 6 and 7, this uh, Hebrew word mean, which means kind. It says, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. What does he mean by kind? Well, it's got to be genetic information. In this case, botanical, plant life, you see. Genesis 1.21 so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good. And we get the same thing in Genesis 1, 24 and 25. All right, again, variety involved after the flood. Animals migrated to various locations over the earth. How does that work? All right, well, the, the mountain, the, the ark comes to rest on what mountain? You remember? Ararat. Mount Ararat. Where's that? Well, it's modern Turkey. All right, well, that means that uh, every animal on the face of the earth started there, right? And then they migrated. And as they migrated, some went to warmer climates and some went to colder climates, right? So let's talk about dogs. Turn the next page, page nine. Let's talk about fur length. On the ark, per perhaps, there was a pair of dogs that had medium length fur. And they had the genetic traits for long and short hair within their bodies. Do you see that? Long and short hair, L and S. This is very simple. But this is, did you take classes on, bio, on genetics and all that with the A, A, you know, large A and small A? A, A, B, B, C, C, right? There's the male. And then the same thing with the female, A, A, B, B, C, C. And then when they produce offspring, then you have A, A, B, B, C, C, all caps. That's one species, right? And then it goes on from there. Not species or type, all right? Well, in this case, we're talking about length of fur. You could then end up with four dog children, puppies. <laughs> um, one with short fur, because you have the two S's there. Again, medium fur, just like mom and dad, L and S. And then two with long fur, LL. Now, as they migrate, etc., 
If you're going to a colder climate, what are you going to need? You're going to need the longer fur. What's going to happen to those that don't have long fur? They're going to die. What's going to happen, therefore, to the gene pool? It's going to get specialized. You see? All right, now here's what I want to say to you. Here's what I want to say. Natural selection, look at the bottom of page 9. This is a key point. Natural selection is the opposite of evolution. Why do I say that? Because information, genetic information, is lost, not created. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's lost. We've lost the ability to make short fur. It's genetically gone. We haven't gone from a more complex to a less, or less complex to more complex. We've gone the opposite way. It's actually a form of devolution because we've lost genetic information, especially when those species die off. Do you see that? Information is not created. Turn the page. This is so important. Oh, my goodness. Mutations. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Stop. Sorry, sorry. Bottom of page nine. That's the key statement. I was on the next page. Information is the key. Look at this. This is Dr. Werner Gitt. In the beginning was information. This is a great statement. There is no known law of nature, no known process. <clears throat> there is no known sequence of events which can cause information to originate by itself in matter. Do you realize that? You don't learn how to fly. And that's the essence of evolution, is increasing complexity, is a creation of information. Natural selection is the opposite. Information is lost. It's destroyed. Mutations, then, are really harmful, actually. Have you ever heard of a purebred dog, like a champion dog? What, what's a veterinarian going to tell you about the health of your champion purebred dog? They have nothing but problems. They get sick easily. They have diseases. And why? Because they're really, they become extinct if they weren't protected by their breeders. Whereas the mongrel mutt, you know, you know, I was listening to Ken Ham. He said, you could back over it with a truck three times and it'd be fine. I mean, they just do really well, you know. But, but those specially bred dogs are really weakened form. Mutations then are really probably a result of the fall in some respects. All point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information, not to increase it. Not even one mutation has ever been observed that adds even a little information to the genome. Do you realize how significant that is? We can't go the inverted pyramid, which we're going to talk about in a moment or next week. Anyway, the inverted pyramid, you can't go up because that means information is being created. Where did it get? Natural selection goes the opposite way, like this. You see what I'm saying? It goes the opposite way. Oh, my goodness. A devastating problem for evolution, life from non-life. That's next time. I am so sorry. But anyway, just look at this inverted pyramid, and we'll talk about it next week. Evolutionists tell us that this is what happened. We go from non-living chemicals to amino acids. We go from amino acids, all left-handed, by the way, we'll talk about that next time, to proteins. We go from proteins to RNA, from RNA to DNA, from DNA to single-celled organisms. That's life. That's where it started, right there. That's the first time we had life. From, uh, from single-celled organisms to multi-celled organisms. From multi-celled organisms to invertebrate marine life. From invertebrates to vertebrate marine life. From vertebrates to amphibious animals. From amphibious animals to reptiles. From reptiles to mammals. From mammals to primates. And from primates to man. You and me. Now, where do you think the fossil record should pick up? Well, let's say from multicelled organisms on, we should have a full fossil record, and we have nothing. We just have fully formed organisms, just as they are. Species just as they are. Abrupt appearance. So the origination of life and fossil record 
uh, fully God willing, we'll talk about next time. Any questions? I hope not. <laughs> Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to look at this tonight. And Father, I pray that you would please grant us the time to continue studying. I pray that we would realize what an unbelievably satanic, evil lie this whole thing has been foisted on us. And we see the roots of it, our unbelief and rejection that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Father, I pray that the difficulties that all of us face in understanding the complexity of life would humble us, that we'd realize and not be arrogant the other way and think that we have all the answers either. The fact is that life is an incredibly complicated thing. And ultimately, the explanation is given in John chapter 1 where it says, in him, Christ, in him was life and that life was the light of man. Help us to understand this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.